Hi, I'm Nam Kiwanuka. Join us and be part of the conversation on The Thread, streaming on TVO.org, The Thread with Nam on YouTube and other TVO platforms, and be sure to follow us on Instagram at TVO The Thread. For more in-depth perspectives and interesting stories, sign up for our daily newsletter at TVO.org daily. Canadians find U.S. politics fascinating. And the spectacle of the past four years of a Trump administration has, by turns, astonished, appalled, maybe even inspired people on both sides of the border. But what if, after the next election, things really go sideways? Is Canada ready to deal with what would be the results? With us to consider that, in the nation's capital, Wesley Wark, CG Senior Fellow and an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa's Center on Public Management and Policy. And here in the provincial capital, in downtown Toronto, Janice Stein, the Bellsburg Professor of Conflict Management in the Department of Political Science, and of course the founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the U of T. And in Seton Village, writer and editor Stephen Marsh, whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Walrus, among others, and who is currently working on a book about, yes, a possible second civil war in the United States. And we are, I usually say, I'm pleased to welcome you all here for this conversation. I am very concerned about this conversation, truth be told. Um, Stephen, we are going to get into what that book of yours is all about, because, of course, it's incredibly disquieting if you turn out to be right. Let's start with a few quotes here just to uh, set the table for this conversation. Earlier this month, Michael Caputo, who is a top communications official for the administration's coronavirus response, urged President Trump's supporters to prepare for an armed insurrection after a contested election. He wrote, the drills that you have seen are nothing. If you carry guns, buy ammunition, ladies and gentlemen, because it's going to be hard to get. Noam Chomsky, the famed MIT professor, said last week, high-level people from the Republicans and the Democrats, they've been running war games asking what would happen if Trump refuses to leave office. Every one of them leads to civil war. Every scenario that they can think of, except a Trump victory, leads to civil war. This is not a joke. Nothing like this has happened in the history of parliamentary democracy. And one more. Last week, David French, the political commentator, lawyer, and author in the States, wrote in a post entitled, Yes, America Could Split Apart. He wrote, this cultural kindling is increasingly ready to burst into political flame. Not today, not tomorrow, but all the trends are bad. All the trends are dangerous. History teaches us from 1776 for good and 1861 for evil that when geographically concentrated, like-minded Americans believe their culture is under threat, they can and will determine that the existing union shall not last. Okay, let's get into this. How much of this, Janice, start us off, how much of this is, you know, pre-election rhetoric and how much of this really suggests that they are on the precipice of widespread violence? So I think Steve and I, and Steve will do this um, as well. I think it's important to distinguish here between widespread violence and civil war. They're very, very different. I think anybody who is watching the United States is clearly concerned about violence. There are a whole host of reasons for that. But violence is a long, long way from civil war. So I am going to say openly, I think the likelihood of civil war in the United States is very low. Janice Stein is from Missouri on this. In other words, <laughs> show me. Okay, Stephen Marsh, show her. 
Well, I mean, I think it depends what you mean by civil war, right? I mean, when I wrote the article for The Walrus that this book is based on in 2018, even coming up with the argument that America was in civil strife was hard to make. Um, But I think we're obviously there now. There are roving battles on the streets of major American cities. Um, You know, I think the civil war that we're talking about is not really armed encampments, but really uh, the breakdown of society, things like what we've seen in the Middle East in places like Syria and Libya and so on. And that seems to me much more likely. I mean, the the book that I'm working on deals with sort of deep models. Um, When you see things like what's happened in the Supreme Court right now, where essentially the legal system of the United States is now a partisan spoil for party politics, that is classic uh, prelude to civil war. Um, When you see things like, you know, the best available models show us that there's going to be about 13 million climate change refugees within the next 20 years in America. You know, that's not a million years away. That's in our lifetimes. Uh, When you see uh, the rise of the far right in the United States, which is totally underrated, Uh, you know, like the violence that we're seeing in Oregon, the violence that we're seeing on the streets, which is basically left wing violence, is is really going to be nothing. Uh, compared to when the armed militias uh, really start to make themselves felt, which which they haven't yet. So, you know, I don't want to be alarmist. But on the other hand, I think that when you talk to the experts at PRIO, when you talk to uh, the hyper-partisanship experts, effective partisanship, what you're seeing here is a very classic spiral where the system of government no longer is legitimate to people. The legal system is no longer legitimate to people. And violence, you know, violence and chaos are the inevitable result. And I think, um, you know, not to not to put too fine a point on it, but this isn't a prediction anymore. We're this is in progress. This is not an incipient thing. This is this is happening right now. Wesley Work, you get to break the tie. <laughs> I think I'm leaning more actually in, in uh, Janice's camp on this. I mean, everybody is is right to be worried. Uh, about what the next steps in American politics uh, might uh, might hold, both for the United States and for the world. But I think everything depends on, on an issue that we need to focus on, which is the question of the conduct of the American presidential election and the question of whether or not the outcome will seem as le- will, will be seen as legitimate, both within the United States and in the international system. And I think we all have to hope that that a, a path to legitimacy will be found um, and, and the election will be accepted no matter who wins. But if that if we descend into a, a period where there's widespread disbelief in the outcome uh, of the election, that could be. But I say just could be that could be the trigger for, for some outbreaks of violence and certainly for longer term instability. But I think the key question is. What is the election going to look like and is it going to be perceived as, as legitimate? Well, you ask what the election is going to look like. I want to know more. And Stephen, I'll come back to you on this. I want to know more about what a civil war is going to look like, because, you know, 150 years ago, it was a northern army versus a southern army and a half a million mm-hmm. people were dead four years later, five years later. You know, it's hard to imagine that's what it would look like today. There, there is oh, no, no, no southern army. So tell us no. what it looks like in your view. It looks like arms insurgents. It looks like pockets of militias, which already exist. The three percenters, uh, you know, sovereign citizens alone, like the the 
the, the people, the minimum number of sovereign citizens in the United States are 600,000 people. So that dwarfs anything in the 60s, right? Like, we're, I, I think that the far right in the United States is a huge pop, part of the population, and they're extremely armed, and they are extremely uh, filled with righteousness. And what, what we'll see is, you know, exactly what you see in Syria where, well, not exactly, of course, but like when I imagine it, it's not armed encampments, it's just the breakdown into tiny pockets of little loyalties, which we're already there. Right. Well, we're, let me go to like Janice. That's, that's on already that. happening. OK, let the, me go the to question Janice. is when the larger structures but like the question is about this election is, well, if it fails. But, you know, the larger trend is that all the institutions in the United States are becoming illegitimate to the people. Like it doesn't matter what happens with the Supreme Court in, you know, in horse race politics for now. Half of the country, one way or the other, is going to feel that the Supreme Court is just a bunch of partisan hacks. Once that happens, you know, the, the, you lose stability, like stability is gone. Okay, it's let me gone. put that to Janice. Janice, I mean, he does make a fair point that institutions have never been less respected. There is a sense that the old rules and the old ways, the old norms of doing things don't matter anymore because this president has so degraded them. I mean, you've got to give him that much anyway, right? For sure, for sure. And it's a deep concern that institutions are being delegitimized. And there I agree entirely with you. But just remember for a moment, the U.S. Supreme Court was delegitimized in the 30s. FDR threatened to pack the court. Uh, so this is not, and we didn't have a civil war after that. Because so he never just, did it. He never did. He threatened to do it, but he never did it. So the polarization was similar to what we're hearing now. Well, if the Democrats win after this election, they'll pack the court. So again, just a little bit of perspective on this. I think there's no question, um, and this is of concern, that there are armed militias and there's a readiness to use violence. Now, what happens in societies when that happens? The military is the arbiter of civil order. And we have a military um, uh, and there is some divide between officers and enlisted men, but overwhelmingly, the military uh, is probably most disaffected from this president. Uh, and there's no question that the military, if push came to shove, would intervene to uh, maintain civil order uh, if it were required to do so. And it would do so to uphold the Constitution which I think is a very important point. Even the divisions on the court, those left-right polarizing divisions, are all about social issues. But justices such as Justice Gorsuch, these people are all committed to defend the Constitution. And one of the gaming that is going on in Washington right now, and there is a ton of it, um, most of it, uh, and you can argue, and it depends who's doing it, but a significant amount of gaming ends with the military enforcing civil order in pockets of violence in the United States. And that's the worst case scenario, frankly. Stephen, I know you want a quick intervention and then I want to hear from Wesley. Well, I would just say that, you know, a military intervention as the good case scenario should tell us where we're at. Right. I mean, that's what happened in Chile in the 70s with all that came with it. And I think also, like, you know, America has spent 20 years with a policy of pacifying civil unrest in other countries. 
and they've been a complete failure at it. And, you know, the experts that I talk to on counterterrorism, on counterinsurgency, uh, do not have any hope that they can actually impose that. They couldn't impose it on Iraq. They, why, why would they be able to impose it on Oregon? Yeah, I think oh, sorry, what I that's, that's the worst case scenario. It's not the good scenario. It's the worst case scenario. And what's really important here um, is you have um, institutions of the state and the military are widely trusted in the United States, despite the, the politicization of many others. These, the military totally committed to upholding the institution and the civil power. Okay, Wesley, uh, one of the reasons we wanted you three on here is because all of this having been said, we really need to have a much better understanding of the impact all of this could have on us. Uh, We're not that far away from all of this. So what I want to find out from you is, are the foreign policy thinkers in Ottawa aware of all of this? Are they making plans for all of this? Do they have a sense about what impact all of this is going to have on us? Talk about that if you would. Sure, Steve. Well, I, you know, I think the first thing, and it, and it links to the previous conversation from from Janice and Stephen, is that you know, if we if we look at historical uh, lessons around how democracies collapse, and the 1930s was mentioned, and and FDR, they fundamentally collapse. Uh, history tells us at least uh, are because uh, the the idea of democracy itself uh, collapses. But secondly, and and most importantly economies collapse for uh, in terms of their ability to serve and maintain the majority of the population. Are we in that condition in the United States? And, and this is, is something, of course, that, that um, decision makers and bureaucrats are looking at in, in Ottawa. Are we at that point where a, a sense of American democracy is on the point of collapse? Uh, are we at that point where uh, the economy could collapse in the United States to the extent that we impa- impact domestically in the U.S. and here? You know, and I, I think the view in, in Ottawa is that we're not yet at either of those places. You know, what what do people in Ottawa, you know, what is their horizon on this problem? And there are sensitivities and there are limitations, of course. Uh, everybody in Ottawa, whether it's uh, civil servants or ministers or politicians, are, of course, uh, following and tracking very closely the American election again. And they are, you know, and, and this has been done in the past, it will be done in the future. They are intent on trying to come up with scenarios based on what they know about the presidential candidates and their platform scenarios of, of how these will impact uh, on on Canada. But I, th- I think what has to be said, just to, to frame this conversation, is that there is an, an inevitable inhibition uh, in terms of thinking about worst cases uh, of the sort that we've been discussing a bit and, and that Stephen, I think, embraces uh, quite explicitly. And the inhibition around uh, addressing worst cases is, is twofold. One is that they are often not seen as realistic and the second is, to be frank, for Canada, if a worst case scenario emerges in the United States of widespread uh, violence, uh, the decline of political order, the consequences for Canada, you know, this doesn't become a matter of gaming that somebody is doing. The consequences for Canada are frankly unimaginable. And when you have unimaginable consequences, you simply don't want to go there. So uh, I think there is a kind of horizon to the thinking of people in Ottawa which is really scenarios around um, what happens if Trump wins, what happens if Biden wins, uh, what does this mean for the United States, what does this mean for Canada? But it's it's framed in that kind of context and with, I think, an underlying assumption that uh, political order 
will be largely maintained in the United States, and importantly, the American economy will continue to function. Stephen, let me try this with you. Um, yeah. Uh, what year were you born, incidentally? Pardon me? <laughs> what year were you born? 1976. Okay, so the, the rest of us... I don't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> the, the rest of us were around to remember 1968, which was a pretty yeah, awful yeah. year in the United States. You know, Robert Kennedy was yeah. assassinated, Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, the Vietnam protests were absolutely roiling in the streets, Richard Nixon got elected, which made half the country pretty unhappy. Uh, yeah. But but America got through it. It held together in spite of some absolutely horrendous things. What makes this different? Well, I mean, I think in hindsight, what you see in the 60s is the system working. Like what Watergate was, was the system working. People trusting the press, the application of law onto the president, uh, the fact that no one is above the law. I mean, Watergate, from the point of view of 2020, the scandal involved is so minor and so negligible compared to what Trump has done with no consequences that it, I mean, it barely even registers. And, you know, like there was, of course, huge unrest in the 60s, 110 cities burned after MLK was shot. But I think you have to you have to put into context that the, the really radical movements in the United States in the 60s, the ones that caused real fear were very small, like the Black Panther, the weathermen, really the best estimate is that there were about a thousand of them. There are 600,000 sovereign citizens at a minimum. And there are there are militia groups in states alone, like in, in Washington state alone, that dwarf the weathermen that, and, 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 you know, and have terrorist impulses and are much better armed. So, you know. I understand the 60s were very important for people, um, but what we're living through now is a completely different scale of crisis. I mean, totally, totally different. In which case, Janice, uh, we heard Wesley say a moment ago that the folks in Ottawa find game playing this out unimaginable if you look at the most extreme example. Uh, but let's imagine it. Let's imagine that things just completely go to you know where in the United States. We have to have some kind of contingency here. I mean, that's their job to figure this stuff out. What do they do? So so let's talk about the fundamentals here, Steve, and Wesley's absolutely right. It's the US economy. Uh, we live or die um, in this country, um, literally, uh, because the lifeblood of our economy is the US economy. 40% of our GDP um, is directly dependent on what we import and export. Uh, from the United States, and actually that figure I think might be a little conservative. So if we go through, and I, I am going to, again, I, I think the very pessimistic scenario that Stephen is presenting is a tail risk. That's the, uh, you know, a black swan. Uh, uh, but even prolonged um, violence um, in some of the major cities in the United States, if the U.S. economy uh, declines. That is a huge problem for this country. And the options the Canadian government has, frankly, are limited. So it is all about security issues are securing supply chains uh, well, for, for critical imports. It's that kind of focus that is really, really important. Well, Wesley, one of the things you could you could immediately imagine is a, you know, a torrent of people arriving at the border saying, we want to get out of that and get into this nice, peaceful country in the north. You can imagine that, I presume. <laughs> yeah. Well, to, to be honest, Steve, I, I find that a bit difficult to imagine um, in this sense. One is that it's very difficult for people, particularly in a prosperous, advanced 
democracy so far that the United States is very difficult for them to give up everything and, and rush to a border. The second is that Americans are Americans. I mean, there is a deep streak of patriotism and nationalism and often xenophobia uh, in the American um, in the American political uh, culture and and makeup, uh, and you know, uh, lots of Americans know very little about Canada for for good reasons, or even hold some aspects of Canadian society up to suspicion. So um, you know, we we've seen occasional rushes to the border in the past, uh, Vietnam draft dodgers, for example. Uh, but I frankly can't imagine a rush to the Canadian border. What, what I can imagine in the worst kind of circumstances where, and, and for me, these are the worst circumstances, where you get an election that is seen for whatever reason as illegitimate, uh, where pockets of violence break out in parts of the United States, I can see internal migrations taking place as people seek more safety and security in different parts of the United States. I don't foresee a rush to the Canadian border, frankly. Stephen, how about you, know, you on that? Well, I, think well, I see. I mean, I, I think it's anecdotal so far. Uh, but I mean, I'm amazed at the dual citizens coming home. I mean, the people giving up jobs in the States to come back often with with no uh, with nothing else because of covid. I mean, it shocked me. People I assumed would never, you know, VPs of major companies uh, coming back with no employment just for the because they want to be safe. I've always been amazed by that. But, you know, I mean, I think like we're already living in the unimaginable. That seems to me to be the the key thing we need to process here, right? Is that, you know, having a U.S. trade delegate declare us a national security threat, which happened in 2017, was unimaginable, quote unquote. Uh, you know, all of California and the West Coast burning down was unimaginable. A, a U.S. president praising the North Korean dictator was unimaginable. Um, you know, openly talking about delaying the delivery of vote of vote by mail that deliver uh, of delaying mail in order to distort an election was unimaginable or delaying so the election date our, yeah i mean if our civil servants are, are are not thinking about the unimaginable then they're not thinking about reality and, and, yeah. and the reality Listen, needs, like the you know, reality Stephen, is an existential threat for us yeah, I think this is just exaggerated and and there's no point to it. I mean, to be honest, uh, you know, you, what happens in those kinds of circumstances where and let me give you one historical example, it might seem a stretch. But when when senior decision makers face a situation which they imagine um, is a worst case, all that happens is that they refuse to think realistically about the situation on the ground. My favorite historical example of this is actually Joseph Stalin and Operation Barbarossa. Joseph Stalin in 1941 believed that the Soviet Union could not survive a war with the, with the, with the Third Reich. So what did he do in, in that circumstance? And, and he was exaggerated in that thinking, of course, as history tells us. What he did in that circumstance was, was simply imagine that no invasion from the Third Reich could possibly happen and that he could outsmart Hitler and so on and so forth. And, and we know the outcome uh, of that. The problem with embracing worst case thinking where there are no realistic scenarios that you can imagine for yourself is that it leads to the opposite, curiously, which is is a form of magical thinking. So I would just urge caution no, no. about this, that if you embrace worst case thinking, you end up in a Canadian context with magical thinking that all is going to be fine in the United States. And we, we can't afford that. 
What we have yeah. to look I'm at sorry, are but some realistic the magical scenarios. Thinking here, the magical thinking here is that Biden is going to get elected and everything's going to be go back to normal. I mean, Nobody, when, well, you not, at, when you look at when you look at these thinking, when you look Steve, at these, okay, stand by everybody, stand st- stand by, Janice. I know you're trying to get in. Go ahead, please. So, so I think it's really important when when Steve you, Stephen you just itemized a list of unimaginables. Of course, Canadians understand that this president is a norm breaker and a rule breaker. That's a long way from the United States descending into chaos, frankly. Uh, and so we have to be careful that this kind of, to be honest, hype language is not helpful and. I think the critical point here is that when you continuously prepare for the worst, even in this country, uh, you draw, you distort your own institutions and you push your society to places that are not helpful to go. You know, we could have spent the last, the first decade of this century preparing for a massive terror attack and we would have distorted all our fundamental institutions in deep ways. So, it is important to understand that some of the stuff is possible, but so unlikely. What is likely, and we've seen this before, and I, I agree with Wesley, we've had some return of Canadians from the United States. That's a great outcome for this country, frankly. They are very talented people. I'm very pleased to have them back. I wish more would come. We could get a trickle of Americans. The only time we had more than a trickle was Vietnam draft dodgers who want to join the army. But Americans don't leave their country. Now, there are undocumented immigrants in the United States. And this might be a great opportunity. Uh, if, if there is uh, some disturbances in the cities, to try to cross the border into Canada. Canadians feel quite strongly about controlling our border, and I am sure that our officials and our politicians are thinking about that because that's a possible scenario. I think our government does think through what are reasonable possibilities here. Well, let's do this. Let's do this with a couple of minutes left here. Stephen, if, if, okay, let's say you're right. Let's plan for the unimaginable. What should our folks on this side of the border be doing right now? Well, I, I think in the very clearest way, we have, I mean, we have, we have to be preparing for a total disaster because that's, you know, they are saying it's going to happen. So we should probably be preparing for it. Um, but I mean, I think the HB1 visa program, like just using using that failure of theirs to increase, there are small things like that that we can do. But I think the fact that the American electoral system is essentially now a spoils of war that they've, you know, that you can buy uh, U.S. Congress, like, like dark money is now a, a normal fact means that we have to really involve ourselves in American politics in a way that we have never done before. We've always had the luxury of never engaging in real politique because, you know, big bad America takes care of us. And so we get to talk about liberal institutions and how much we love them. I don't think we're safe anymore. Like we need to rethink our our, our global position for our existential survival, given that America is already abandoned. I mean, I know this is worst case thinking, but They've already abandoned NATO membership as a like the basis of NATO membership as uh, as we're all in this together. Our trade agreements are obviously they they do what they like with them. Uh, you know, these things are very, very threatening to us and we need to prepare for them. 
Wesley, you want to come back on that? Sure. Listen, I, I think the, the the duty of of everyone concerned about uh, events in the United States on our side of the border is to keep a close watch on what's going on in the United States. You know, and 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 I think it will be important for the Canadian government, no matter what happens, to to show leadership, and and for there to be some pretty calm political messaging from from Ottawa and provinces and territories about their responses to whatever occurs in in the American election. What we don't want to see is um, any kind of Canadian interference in the U.S. election. Uh, you know, this is what Russia does clandestinely. It's it's what we know from from long experience that we uh, cannot do. You know, we the, should start the thing that we too. can do, we the thing that we can do is keep on top to the best of our ability in terms of all our sources of information about what's going on in the United States, and in a way to make sure that we protect our own information space in Canada. Uh, from the arrival of polarized and violent messages from the United States, which is, I think, a concern. Friends, that is our time, but I want to thank all of you for coming on a TVO tonight and having one heck of a provocative yet civilized discussion <laughs> about um, uh, the end of days. <laughs> Wesley Work in the nation's capital, Stephen Marsh in Toronto, Seton Village, Janice Stein downtown in the provincial capital. Thanks to the three of you, and uh, of course, as I like to say to all our guests, uh, stay positive, but uh, test negative, okay? See ya. <laughs> Bye. The Agenda with Steve Pakin is brought to you by the Chartered Professional Accountants of Ontario. CPA Ontario is a regulator, an educator, a thought leader, and an advocate. We protect the public. We advance our profession. We guide our CPAs. We are CPA Ontario. And by viewers like you. Thank you.